Our Bible reading for today, from where Pastor Craig is going to preach the sermon, is Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 20. So that's Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 20. If you would like to have a physical Bible, there are many Bibles in the foyer. This section, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 20, is titled, The Armor of God. So Ephesians chapter 6, starting from verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes of your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in the opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Ray. So I like to unclick that microphone because it kind of goes up my nose. It's a very long, long one. Well, it's lovely to see all of you and a very warm welcome to you, If particularly if you're visiting us. It's great to have you with us. Here we are at the, the end of the year. It's the last day of 2023. I, I, found, I think we say this every year, but I really have found this year to have gone by so, so quickly. And as we come into the new year, I thought to myself, what should we talk about on this last Sunday? Now, typically, we're in a series of some sort. But I thought, let's do a one-off as we go into the new year. Let's think about how we should advance into the new year. And so I thought it would be good to look at this passage that Zach read out a moment ago. So let's, let's think about it. Uh, I want to mention to you a man called Richard Shuckborough. Richard Shuckborough. He lived in the 1600s in Warwickshire in central England. Maybe you've been there. It's kind of near where, where Shakespeare's Stratford-upon-Avon home is. And he was a country gentleman. He was one of the landed gentry. And he sided with King Charles I when the, the English Civil War broke out, which began in that very same year, in 1642. And the war was a dispute over the power of the king, so the royal side, as against the power of the parliament, the, the House of Commons. Well, 
Sir Richard loved hunting, and on the 22nd of October in 1642, he was out hunting with his hounds. He was living the quiet country life. That picture that you see there is the way his residence looks today. It's been added onto, but it's it's added onto his original residence from way back when. And so there he is living this quiet life, hunting with his hounds when he comes upon King Charles preparing for battle with his army. And King Charles saw him hunting and he asked his attendants, who is that gentleman who hunts so merrily when I go to fight for my crown and for my dignity? And so King Charles and Sir Richard met up and it was until that moment that Sir Richard had no idea that a battle was brewing right on his doorstep. And when he became aware of it, he then went across his estates and he raised up the men that lived there for battle. And that battle that took place was the very first battle of the English Civil War, known as the Battle of Edge Hill. Now, think about this. We may not be aware, similarly to the story, we may not be aware of a serious battle that is going on around us. Uh, If the passage is still open there, have a look at verse 12. The Apostle Paul says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There is a war going on. And I wonder if you are prepared. Am I prepared? I hope we're not ignorant that there is a war going on. Perhaps some of us are. Because that's not good. If we are not aware, then we are not prepared for battle. We won't know how to go forward. As I said, so Richard went off when he knew there was a battle and he raised up men from all over his estate. And so we need to be prepared for a battle. And we need to understand that there is a difference between the battle that we see physically and the battle that we don't see that's going on in the spiritual realm. Let's think a bit about the battle that we see. You know as well as I do that the Christian life has its troubles we, we have troubles in our churches. We have troubles in our families. We have trouble in community because people are involved, because of people. People cause trouble. We all do. If you've been a Christian for a while, you've bound to come across, because many preachers bring this out, you've bound to have heard the story of G.K. Chesterton writing to the newspaper In the early 1900s, the Times of London, that newspaper, posed a question to some prominent authors, G.K. Chesterton being one of them. And the question was, what's wrong with the world today? And Chesterton responded like this, writing to the newspaper, he said, Dear sir, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. You see, he understood so well that we are all born with a sinful nature. 
People are the problem. We all contribute to the trouble in our world. There is, there is no office. There is no school. There is no family. There is no church without difficulty because of people. Now, the difference among Christians is that we are moved by God's Spirit to put our sin to death. A Christian will repent and do the work to deal with their sin. But Christians are not perfect. Why will Christians be like this, though? Why will they repent and do the work to to put their sin to death? And the answer to that question is because a Christian is a new creation. We have been made new by God. Let's think a bit about that. The church, this gathering of God's people, of Christians, is a new creation. In the very first chapters of Ephesians, Paul shows that the church is a miracle, a miracle of God. He shows how God has worked by his power to make spiritually dead humanity alive in him. And so when you are around the church, the people of God, you are around people who have been made spiritually alive. Remember that the church is not a building. The the word church is not supposed to describe an institution. It's not a denomination. Church means, in the Bible, church means the collection of all those who are spiritually alive, that God has brought in his power into his family. And it's a people of all different types. And so in Ephesians, one of the big things in chapter 2 is Paul makes, he, he, he just wonders and delights in the fact that all different types, Jew and Gentile, come together. And they've come together in this profound unity such that they can be called brothers and sisters. And so in those chapters, in those early chapters of Ephesians, there's the wonder of what God has done by his power to create this new creation, this people that have been made into his family. It all comes to a high point in chapter 3 and verse 10. And I want you to hear these and read it if your Bible is open, chapter 3, verse 10. Look at what this remarkable work of God achieves. So chapter 3 verse 10 says that, so that, God's work, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. The manifold wisdom of God is seen across the entire spiritual realm when they look at us when they look at the church. You know, when you see a remarkable work done by a master craftsman or an artist, surely when you see it, you, you can't help yourself and you, just, and you say, wow. And perhaps if it's an artwork, you stand there looking at it in wonder. Look what this person has achieved. Recently, I came across the art of Kim Chang Yul. Maybe you've heard of him. He was famous for painting water droplets. 
And you can see on the picture there, they are remarkably real. What you're seeing there is not someone having come past and flicked water onto a canvas. I am deeply impressed by what Mr. Kim Chang Yul has created. He's a master artist. Well, he was. He, he died in 21. So go back to chapter 3 and verse 10. What has the creation of the church achieved? That verse tells us it has shown the manifold wisdom of God to the rulers, to the authorities in heavenly places. Think about that word manifold. Manifold means many-featured or the many-faceted wisdom of God. God is wise in ways that are beyond measure. He must be incredibly wise, incredibly powerful, so remarkable if he can turn people from hating him, because that's the natural state of humans, to loving him, and if he can turn people who are naturally against each other, hating each other, into becoming the family of God in Christ, becoming people who truly love one another. Now think about who gets to see this wonderful wisdom. Well, we're told it's the heavenly realm. There are beings in the heavenly realm that we cannot see. There is a whole system beyond our realm. And in that system are angels. And in that system also are demons. And when they all get to see the church, they get to see the wonder of God. That's what Paul is telling us here in Ephesians. But this church, this wonder of God is not perfect. It's not perfect yet. Until Christ returns, in each and every one of us, our old nature still exists. It's, it's, it's yet to be completely destroyed. And so until Christ returns, we will be in the midst of trouble. We will be in a battle that we see. We will be in a battle that we experience physically. And it's this trouble that we experience being around people other people and you will know it's on a spectrum so perhaps on the lighter side of the spectrum it may just be that some trouble happens between some people because we didn't understand that the other person uh, we didn't understand what they were doing and we got crossed with them and we assumed that they did something wrong and we were hurt by it perhaps we feel snubbed because we greeted them we walk past, we greeted them, and they just didn't answer. And so the hurt churns inside, and we feel resentful. But they didn't hear us because they were so deep in thought about something. They were in their own world. And some people are more inclined to be like that than others. They haven't really done anything wrong. But on the darkest side of the spectrum, it may be that we are dealing with people who are in indeed ungodly in our midst, people who are so self-absorbed and so full of pride, people who bully and hurt other people because they actually do think they're superior. And so there's a big problem there. That's on the darkest side of the spectrum. And I've seen both those sides of the spectrum in church life over the years. And I've seen much in between. 
And I'm sure I've been responsible for some of the difficulty too in my human imperfection and sin. I'm sure you've seen these things too in church if you've been a Christian for a reasonable amount of time. It really is part of the raw reality of life on this side of eternity. Once Jesus returns and the new world begins, then we will have no more trouble. This is why Paul has written Ephesians. He knows that there will be difficulty. He knows that the church, as remarkable as it is, he knows there will still be battle. So much of this letter is a call to watch out for how we treat each other because Paul knows this is the reality. And so, for example, in chapter 4 and verse 26, we are told as Christians, we're told this, we must not let the sun go down on our anger. Because, you see, there is a godly way to deal with anger for the sake of healthy relationships, for a healthy church, for a healthy family. Don't let the sun go down. Don't let this thing stew and brew and fester. Paul knows. Or another example, and there are many leading up to the part we've got this morning. Chapter 5 and verse 3 says this. Sexual immorality and all impurity must not even be named among us. In other words, what it's saying there is, we as Christians must take such great care to be godly that we are never even able to be accused of such things. We should be so attuned to the places we go to and the things that we look at, the way we speak, so that no one can ever accuse us of being immoral. And the list goes on. But the call is to put effort into being this great and wonderful display of God's manifold wisdom that the church is. If you were to summarize the whole of Ephesians, it's essentially saying, church, be what you are. You are this glorious creation of God. Be it. Live up to it. But what Satan wants is a disempowered church. And this is why the letter ends with the call to put on this armor for spiritual combat. And so let's think a bit now about that battle, the battle that we do not see. Verse 12 tells us where our real battle is, where it is ultimately. It's in the spiritual realm. Verse 12 tells us who our enemy is. The battle is not essentially against people or as Paul says, flesh and blood. It is against cosmic powers, spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. There is a darkness in our midst. And we will see it. We will see it in the church because it's not perfect. And we will also see it coming at us from a hostile world. And it will seek to destroy us. What does Paul call this hostility? What does he call this that is going on? 
in this world around us, this side of eternity. In verse 12, he calls the trouble this present darkness. But he is telling us that spiritual forces are behind it. Are you surprised to hear that behind the troubles the church faces are spiritual powers? Does that surprise you? Well, we shouldn't really be surprised that the spiritual realm, the evil side of it, is all riled and worked up about the church. We should not be surprised that there is this this darkness against us. Because you see, remember chapter 3 and verse 10. Who is seeing the manifold wisdom of God when they see the church? Well, we were told in that verse, in chapter 3, verse 10, it's the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Well, the ones in those places who are evil do not like the church because they hate God. And the church is this display of the wonder of God. So, if you hate Kim Chang Yuel, the artist, then you will want to stand against him. You will want to destroy his good work. In verse 11, Paul instructs us on standing against the schemes of the devil. This being out there who hates God and therefore hates God's good work. The devil seeks to work ways to break us down. It says he schemes. In other words, he strategizes. Trouble in church is normal. When great difficulties arise, Christians often think that something is particularly wrong with their church, that their church is not healthy. As, as if, as if a good church never has difficulties. But the reality is that there are so many occasions in the New Testament where Paul himself and the other apostles experienced great disappointment as some leaders among them turned out to be ungodly. My point is that trouble is going to happen. God would never have given us instruction in the scriptures on church discipline, how to do it, if God did not think that things would go wrong, if God did not think there would be difficulties. We always were, from the start, going to be in a battle. A battle from the outside world being against the church, and a battle from inside as some of our own go wrong. But unless we understand the battle, we will not be well equipped for the fight. And this is why Paul draws us, at the end of this letter, draws our attention to the reality that the battle is beyond what we can see. And so let's think about the strategy that we are given. When you know who your enemy is, and when you know what your enemy is like, then you'll fight them strategically. And we've been given the strategy here. I wonder if you know that during World War II, the British knew who their enemy was, and they knew what their enemy was like. They understood that the Germans would seek to bomb their battleships at anchor at the, in the various ports. 
And so they built decoy ships out of wood to look like the real thing. And that picture on, on the screen, those are not, the, the one right in the front and the one way at the back are not real ships. They're made out of wood. And this trick would then make the enemy think, ah, oh, those are the real ships. And so they might go and bomb them. Or they may not realize that their actual fleet is out at sea. And so they will think, oh, well, they're at harbor, so we don't have to worry about them right now. I put that to you because there's a clear strategy there. We are also given a clear strategy in the passage that's been read this morning. And it has two parts. Part number one is put on armor. Part number two is pray. Let's have a look at them. Let's think about the armor first. Have a look at verses 10 to 11. Notice where the power lies so that we are able to defeat our spiritual enemy. Notice this. I'll read it to you. Finally, says Paul, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. It's it's God. The power is with God. Why do we need the armor of God? Why do we need resources from God to be able to come through this battle, to be able to stand in this battle? Because look at verse 12. It says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. That word wrestle in the original means we do not have hand-to-hand combat with flesh and blood. That's not ultimately where the battle is. No, we are dealing with something beyond this realm. And we have not got the ability to overcome a force more powerful than we are. And so we need power that is beyond our ability. We need power that comes from God. It is all of God. Nothing comes from us. And so verse 13 says, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. So what is this armor then? You know, in short, this armor is the gospel. All the parts that are listed here are aspects of the gospel. How the gospel affects you for good in the battle. When it says put on, it means clothe yourself in the gospel. It means live your life in the gospel, and then you will not fall. So let's have a look at it. Paul likens the aspects of the gospel to a Roman soldier's armor. And many commentators think that he was looking at a literal soldier because he wrote this while he was under arrest. And so it's an illustration as he looks at the, at the Roman soldier's armor. And all of these features of the gospel that he's now going to go into have already been covered in Ephesians. We are being called to take them on board in our lives. And so as you consciously put yourself under the gospel, so you are, in effect, dressing in it. You're putting it on. And you do this by getting to know it more and more each day as you walk the Christian life, as you read your Bible as you come under teaching at church, as you have conversations with other believers, 
as you take part in Bible study groups, so you are clothing yourself in this armor. I just want to give you a a quick run-through as to how it works. Have a look at the the first bit, the, the belt of truth. We need truth because there are lies that come to us from our spiritual enemy. Lies that are designed to throw us off. Already in Ephesians, I said to you, you will find all of this as you read through Ephesians. Already in Ephesians 4 and in verse 14, Paul has said that we need the truth of God's word. We need the truth of the gospel so that we will not be immature in our faith and become like, and now I'm quoting from that part of Ephesians, and become like infants tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine and by, notice this, and by deceitful schemes. So even there in chapter 4, we're warned about deceitful schemes. We're told in chapter 6 about the devil's schemes. And so it's important to get to know God's word. When you know God's word, when you know the gospel, which is all through the Bible, it's, it's like you're putting on this belt of truth, this belt that holds the whole, the whole panoply of armor together. Secondly, the armor is described as, as a, a part of it is described as the breastplate of righteousness. You cannot make yourself righteous. There's nothing that you can do to make yourself righteous. It is God's work through the gospel that makes us righteous. In the gospel, we have a new self. So in Ephesians 4 and 24, we are told there to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And so we are a people that have put on this new self that comes to us from God, and we are a people who then go about life saying no to things that are ungodly because we have taken the gospel on board. A person wearing the gospel armor will be concerned to be godly Because the gospel shows us what's not godly. If I'm a grouchy and snappy person, this gospel that I've put on is is saying to me, that's not who you are now. You have a new self, and so you need to put that to death. If I'm a gossip causing damage to other people's reputations, the gospel is saying, you've put on something new. It's not who you are. Be who you are. Stop that. That's the breastplate of righteousness. The shoes of readiness of the gospel of peace. That's the next one. Well, this gospel, as we've already seen in Ephesians, profoundly unites people to God and God to people. And then we become a united people together. There's a profound unity going on. And in Ephesians 4 verse 1, we are told there to make every effort to maintain this unity to maintain this peace that exists in this profound thing God has created called the church. And so the gospel armor we wear at the level of the shoes makes us ready to be peacemakers. If there is trouble between me and another believer or between you and another believer and you are someone wearing this armor, then the shoes drive you to go and make things right and to lovingly sort things out because of who we are. It's just not acceptable that stuff is all broken and we know 
and we don't do anything about it. And then there's the shield of faith. The gospel teaches that we come to know Christ, and I want to emphasize the word know. We come to know him in, in a relational sense. We come to know him through faith. And in Ephesians 3, we are told that through faith, you can see this in verse 19 of Ephesians 3, it says that through faith, listen to this, through faith we are filled with all the fullness of God. Do you sometimes doubt and think to yourself, I'm not truly a child of God? You know, doubt is a real problem for Christians. I'm sure that you've experienced it somewhere along the way. Am I really a child of God? Well, what we're being told here is that, that, that it's through faith that we are filled with the fullness of God. And so if you have faith, then you are his child. If you believe, you are his child and you have a shield now to deflect that doubt lie that comes at you from Satan. You're not real. Look at what you've done. Look at what you said. You, you, you haven't done enough going to church. You haven't done enough religious work. You're not real. No, you are real because you have faith. And faith, we're told in Ephesians, comes to us from God. So if you believe, you didn't muster that up yourself. God gave that to you. So you can hold that shield off and go, I'm dressed in the gospel, Satan, and deflect the lies. Then there's the helmet of salvation. Let me ask you, helmet, how do you think? Do you think that you need to do stuff to be saved? Do you think that maybe you're not going to go to heaven because you haven't been good enough? I want to ask you, what happens in your head? One of the big things that Paul says in Ephesians is this in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And so I, I say to you from this, put the armor on, put that helmet on your head. And it's the helmet of salvation. You are saved in the gospel. Nothing of you, everything of God. And then lastly, as we think of the armor, the sword of the spirit the word of God. The whole Bible is about the gospel. When it is proclaimed, then the powers that are out in the heavenly realms, the evil powers, are defeated. A church that is not proclaiming the gospel, that is not doing things like hope explored, that is not preaching scripture to the people, is not, is not working with God's armor. It is not going out with godly armor. Bible-based, expository preaching, that, that means preaching that opens up the Bible, is the way to push Satan back. And so that's the armor. We are to put it on. We are to live clothed in the gospel. I hope that makes sense to you. That's how we must go into the new year, as we defeat, uh, or at least as we fight an enemy that God defeats. God is the one doing the battle. We are just clothed in his armor. We don't actually do anything. We, we, we rest in the gospel. I want to lastly then look at, at the, the second thing, prayer. The rest of the passage tells us that we are to pray. And this is where we may be weak. Verse 18 tells us to be praying at all times. In other words, prayer must be a, a feature of the Christian's life. Doesn't mean we 
praying all the time, muttering as we go about our day. He said, prayer is a key feature of our life. The core point of the gospel message is that we can do nothing to save ourselves. We are are a people dependent on God. We come to him with nothing in our hands. We come trusting in him to save us in his power. In other words, we are a dependent people. And and it's the same with prayer. When When you are given to prayer, you are showing that you are utterly dependent on God. You, you need him. And so we are told to pray in the spirit. Do you see that there? We're to pray in the spirit. What does that mean? It's not telling you to speak in tongues. In Ephesians and in many parts of the New Testament, you will see that this thing about being in the spirit is about having a godly mindset. What we pray for is to be shaped by what matters to God. So, are our prayers about gospel things, the kinds of things we see great Christian figures in the New Testament praying for? Or are our prayers using God essentially as a vending machine to dispense things that we selfishly want? Is God like a fairy godfather to us or a genie? And we we pray so that he might help us to make lots of money and to own fancy things? Or in our prayers, are we in step with his concerns that we can see all over the Bible? And so, even in these verses, as you keep reading to the end of the passage that was read today, you will see that there's prayer for other Christians, that there's prayer for the spread of the gospel. I put it to you, brothers and sisters, that you will learn the concerns of God if you read your Bible. And so as you bring things to a close now, think about this. We we at Bull Creek, fellow Christians at Bull Creek, we've had a difficult year, particularly as the last months have unfolded. And these difficulties can make us take our eye off the gospel, off the work of the gospel. And we're living in times around us in a world that's more and more hostile to the gospel. And so what will 2024 be like? Who knows for sure? But there is an enemy who is against us. There is an enemy that is beyond the flesh and blood struggles that we have in this world. And so if we are to press forward, if we are to withstand this evil force, We must live in the gospel. We must put the gospel on, clothe ourselves in the gospel, have our lives shaped by this gospel that we've put our faith in. And so also we go into 2024 resolved to be committed to prayer, living in the gospel and praying. Talking about prayer As you think about how you're going to run 2024, I want to ask you, if you can, if you can, I know many can't because of your schedule, but if you can, do join us for our corporate prayer meetings. It's been lovely in in last year, in the latter part of last year, to see more and more people coming to our quarterly prayer meeting. Do come to those things if you can. Can you see from all of this that there is a war on, a real war, and we need to be prepared? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have revealed to us what we need to know so that we can live the Christian life. 
please help us to get our perspective straight. That's number one, there will be trouble in this world until eternity comes. And there will be even trouble in the church. Help us at all times to deal with those difficulties with gospel clothes on. Dealing with the difficulties the way you tell us to in the light of the gospel. With love and kindness. Heavenly Father, also help us to be a people who are strong in prayer. Help us to pray in our individual lives, with friends, in our families, and when we gather corporately as a church. And we pray that you'd help us in 2024, because of this, to shine and to indeed be this marvel that the church is, that when this powers and the principalities in the, in the heavenly realms look at us, they will see the wonder of the living God. In other words, Lord, may we be a people who glorify your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.